Here we are, back with another episode of Sports Media Now. Uh, today we have Mirren Fader in, uh, not the studio, but over Skype. Um, she is a staff writer for Bleacher Report Mag, uh, formerly a contributor to ESPN.com, Sports Illustrated, Slam Magazine, and much, much more. She's got a lot of great insight to bring to the table. If you like feature writing, this is going to be an episode for you. Uh, so without further ado, uh, Marin, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing quite well. So uh, lots of feature story things to talk about here. Uh, because I just have so many questions to ask you. But first, I want to give our listeners a little bit of background on you. Uh, because you had lots of stops before getting to Bleacher Report, Mag. But the first most notable stop on your list was at Occidental College. So can you tell listeners how uh, you kind of got into sports writing and you know what you did your time in college? Yes. Um, everyone else went to huge schools. I decided to go to a really small school, um, but I'm really happy I did um, because it's a liberal arts school. So I learned how to write um, and you can apply that to anything. So I actually started at Lewis and Clark College in Oregon and I played basketball there and ended up transferring. Um, but I was a basketball player my whole life. I love basketball so much. Uh, it was my everything. And, you know, we all get to a point where our careers end and we have to figure out something new. And so I was like, okay, I love writing. I've written my whole life. Um, how am I going to combine these two passions? And I realized sports writing was the thing for me. So yeah, at Oxy, you know, I didn't really have access to you know, the media attention that, say, a USC um, school had. But I had people that really cared about me and allowed me to um, do as many stories as I wanted. And, you know, I had time to make mistakes and figure out my life and figure out how to report and write. And uh, I began freelancing. So that's that's where my college journey started. Well, you said you learned how to write at the liberal arts college, but is that kind of what your intentions were going in? Or is that something that you kind of walked into a little bit? I walked into it for sure. I mean, I wanted to play overseas. I saw myself as an athlete. Like I've always, school was so important to me. I always had the top grades, but you know, I had to shift my focus from athlete to something else. And I was interested in a lot of things. I almost majored in history, anthropology, um, politics. There were just so many interests that I had, but I settled on English because um, at Lewis and Clark College, there was one class that I had called Women Writers. And uh, the first day of class, the teacher says, you know, women weren't supposed to hold the pen. Um, and I just, something in me just kind of snapped. I was like, <laughs> oh, I want, I want to be a writer. I want to learn how to write, you know, because um, I've always done things that, you know, I'm not supposed to. You know, I'm 5'1". I was trying to play in the WNBA. Um, woman writer trying to make it in sports. And so, I had written in my diary like every day since fifth grade. So I'd been a writer this whole time. I just didn't think of it like a career. And so once I had that class, I, I started thinking like, I want to learn how to write, write, you know, I want to write books. I want to, mm -hmm. I want to be in magazines. So it was just a different way to look at it. What was the first step in, you know, going and taking your life in that direction? Well, my first step was looking at a, a blank computer screen with all these rejection emails. Like <laughs> nobody cared about my writing dream. Nobody cared that I had this epiphany in class. They're like, who, right. the, heck, who the heck are you? You have no experience. Um, so it was just getting a lot of rejection letters. But then I figured out, you know, okay, I just need to keep trying. And I ended up doing obits um, for, for different like 
places. And um, one of the things that really got me started was pitching to Slam Magazine. I noticed like they wouldn't respond if I just said, hey, I'd like to write for you. But when I had a specific pitch, they'd be like, yes. Um, Mm -hmm. And a lot of no's too. But once I started pitching to them and getting my foot in the door, it allowed me to pitch to Dime Magazine and SB Nation. And before you know it, I was in college and I was writing for these places. So then I, I decided to um, apply to pretty much every paper magazine in America um, or just send cold emails. Um, I reached out to over 50, I would say around 60. I either got rejected or heard back from none. Um, and I got one one place to respond to me, the Orange County Register. And that's where I spent wow. my first four years. Yeah. <laughs> Persistence is is the theme of my story. Excellent. Well, we love persistence. And so many people have come on here and kind of told a similar story. Um, But I'm curious to know, because so like two of the last couple episodes that we've had um, have been more kind of focused on students. So we've had uh, I've had two guests um, from the Michigan Daily, which is a pretty prominent uh, student newspaper, um, come on the show and just kind of talk about, you know, how to get ahead while you're in college and at a big school like that. But for students at, uh, you know, smaller school, I went to uh, a mid-major, um, the opportunities in the sports landscape aren't as plentiful. Um, so do you think that was a benefit to you at all? And what is the biggest benefit of going to a small school like that? Huge benefit. Uh, first of all, you have access. Um, the worst thing that I think is happening with sports media is that like student journalists aren't even getting access to the players. But if you go to a if you go to a small school, you have all the access in the world. You're like the only person there, maybe two, three people max. Um, and there's no competition. And you you need space like that. You need time and space and access to the journalists to like, I mean, access to the players to know like, okay, this is how interview nobody teaches you how to interview and and to be honest it's not something you can really learn to you know from a book or or being taught it's it's going out in the field every day and making mistakes and growing confidence and feeling better and learning how to flow and learning what you sound like when to pull back when when to ask things when to stop so I think there's a huge benefit to going to a small school because you're going to be able to talk to anyone you want and you have the free reign to pitch whatever you want so you know a lot of times people you know, they only want to pitch football. They only want to write about the best players, the top players. You can learn as much about covering, um, you know, golf and, and track and women's volleyball than any other sport. And I think that going to a small school, you really just have the freedom to pursue whatever you want. Well, and to just add on to that, I think that, like you said, you know, a lot of the same stories are there. It's just not featuring names that are on ESPN and stuff like that. So you can still tell the same type of stories, I feel like, but it's just not, you know, with names that are as nationally or locally known. I mean, 100%. I, I always say to people, like, it's not it's not who you write about and it's not where you write for. It's how you write. So it does not matter if you're not writing about famous people or the best sport or all of these things. What matters is your ability to tell a narrative. And when you go for interviews, you know, people can see through it. Like writing is one of the things that you can't fake. Like you can have connections and early on in in your career, you'll see people get jobs based on connections. But once you hit that five year mark, you really kind of can't fake it anymore. You know, like mm-hmm. it's, it's very clear, like who can write and who can't and who's about it and who's not and who's making the extra call and who's not. And I think that's why you see a lot of people fade away from writing because it's really hard. But at the same time, if you love this and you're dogged about it, it's a huge opportunity for you to shine. 
Now, you just talked a little bit about pitching at Slam Magazine and how, you know, the difference in responses from, hey, I want to write to your magazine to, hey, I actually have an idea that I can pitch. What did those pitches look like for you that got accepted and kind of helped you get the ball rolling? A lot of it was women's pitches. A lot of it was things that I knew that other people didn't care about. Um, I was at a UCLA uh, women's basketball game and I saw this, this girl on the team. I swear to God, she looked like Kyle Korver. I said to my mom, I was like, this is, this is literally the female Kyle Korver. Like what's going on? And she's popping threes. And then we look at the media guide and it's his cousin. So I was like, Oh "Oh my God. Yeah. So I was like, literally it's Kyle, (laughs) um, but it's actually Carrie. And so I ended up, that was my first pitch to slam. I was like, Hey, there's uh, his cousin, and um, you know I think this would be a great story. And bam, they said yes. So women got me in the door, but then I, I found myself in the women's box, like, um, oh, like Marion can only write about women. And I'm not saying that's what they thought of me. I just think like once you have a couple of things out, I think people associate you with that. And so I began to mm. pitch men's stuff. And so thankfully I was freelancing both. Um, but yes, I, I do think sending the pitches were things that were accessible to me in Los Angeles. That's what I always tell um, students reaching out is like, whatever's in your backyard, you have the upper hand and you're not going to necessarily write about like the high D one player or the NBA player at that stage. You're looking for the mid major with a interesting and compelling story. You're looking for, um, you know, a high school person with a compelling story. I covered high school for a long time and I know people look down on it, but there's some amazing stories there to be told. You read a bunch of your stories leading up to this, and one of the things that you know I really, really like is uh, you kind of you just paint such a clear, clear picture. I never feel like I don't know what's going on, and to me, that's the difference when I'm writing a story. You know, between is this going to be good or not? Is how well do I know the world that I'm working in? So, what do you, you know, is the most important way to get comfortable with that and kind of build a scene for yourself before you can build a scene for others? Well, thank you for saying that. That's really kind of you. I think it's, I think it's, it has to do with confidence. I think that, yeah, when I was walking into women's basketball locker rooms, I was confident because I had been there my whole life. I was specifically remember where I was when I was 10 years old and I was like I want to play for UConn you know so like this has been my Mm -hmm. world forever but then you know I stepped into NFL locker rooms and I stepped into NBA locker rooms and I had to realize that like the difference between getting a scene and dropping into a world is confidence and attention to detail so like when I walk in a room I think of it like this like I have pretend you have a camera on your stomach (laughs) And mm-hmm. the camera takes a photo of literally everything you're seeing, like 360. And your job as a writer is to literally write down every single thing that you see in that room. And you're not going to use 80% of them, but the 20% of the details that are the richest, those are going to be amazing. And that's going to create the scene. And so you don't, you don't learn how to do that though. First year out of college, you don't learn to do that second year out of college. It's just, you gain more confidence in doing that the longer you do this, you know, and I'm still young, I'm still learning, but I definitely think like creating a scene, you have to really pay attention to all the details and people don't think in details. So when you're reporting and you're trying to like ask somebody for details for your scene, they're not going to tell you like, I was sitting on my couch. It is red. Actually, it's ruby red, you know, the color of blah, blah, blah. Right. Like that's not how, <laughs> that's not how people talk. So you Absolutely. sometimes you have to risk like you have to look stupid. And early in my career, I was like, I would be so embarrassed to ask these follow-up questions. Like oh, they think I'm so stupid and blah, blah, blah. 
nowadays I just don't care. You can think what you want. I need to get what I need to get. And so I will ask them like, Hey, I'm trying to paint the scene. Like what color was this? Or do you remember what you were wearing or, you know, minute by minute details. And to be honest, like I would rather look stupid than have a, um, a story with holes in it. Cause people can tell. Yeah. Well, and I think that that's a good way to go about it too, because you know, one of the things that can kind of make it uncomfortable is when people, you know, you're asking all these kind of seemingly abstract questions that like people don't know the intentions of. And I think that's a good way to go about it to just be like, Hey, you know, this is what I'm trying to do. Um, you know, how often are you making your intentions clear when you're doing something like this? And how important is that to kind of getting a subject to, you know, ease up, settle in, get more comfortable with you? I think it happens, you know, as time goes on in the interview. Um, sometimes like if I'm not getting what I think I need, and again, sometimes I don't even know what I need. That's the hardest part is like, I can't go in there thinking I know the story because then I'm going to miss where it takes me sometimes. But sometimes if I have a, like a real clear sense, like I need to get this thing, I'm not getting it. Instead of just like panicking in my head, I will just say directly like, you know, I'm really looking for a couple anecdotes about so-and-so's toughness. Like this morning, I was interviewing this coach about this player's toughness and like everyone knows this player's tough, but like I need more than he was tough. I need to know like, what, was he first in line and when the ball came out of the, the hoop, he wouldn't let it touch the floor and he would elbow out. And, you know, I need I need that level of detail. Right. I, wasn't, I wasn't getting it. So I just straight up asked and I got what I asked for, you know, but I, I think it just depends. Like some people, no matter how great you are at reporting or asking, they're not going to open up and give you details. That's another side of it. You have to you have to accept that like you can only do your best. You can only try to get the most fresh details. And sometimes people are just not able to talk in the way that you wish. Well, and you know, a lot of times I think people overcomplicate the interview process. Like you're there to do a story. Obviously it's, you're doing an interview, but it really is just that simple. You know, you don't have to make it some complicated question to get the answer. Sometimes it really is just as simple as being like, Hey, listen, this is what I'm trying to, uh, story I'm trying to tell, do you have any anecdotes, like you just said? Um, but one thing that I, you know, I definitely have struggled with early on when I do uh, features is how do I manage my time when I'm reporting on a feature? I mean, first things first, I think it's it's really healthy to admit what you said. Like, this is a lot, and it's, and it's a high-strung environment, and this is really hard to do. Like, this is not easy, mm. and um, it's especially not easy as a young journalist. I think it depends. I, le I had to learn that. I really did have to learn that, but I had to learn that in different ways. You know, when I was a newspaper reporter at the Orange County Register, my stories were about a 1,000 words, which is long for a paper, but I was really trying to bring features to that paper. Now mm. I write four thousand to five thousand words so the number of people that I'm interviewing now is not the same as then so right now I interviewed like 20 people per story when I was at the register it would be like five to eight but I would always tell myself that I would rather have too much than too little and you know if, it, if I have to over report I'm okay with that because I learned something from that experience even if the quotes didn't make the piece like I'd rather be overwhelmed and having too much than too little you can always cut down but you can't fake it and like god mm. knows we, we've all tried to fake like a 400 words in the lead and it's terrible and if right. you can if you can see through it the reader can see through it so I think you manage the anxiety also by saying like look I'm never gonna know the person that I'm profiling I'm never gonna like 
really know my job, like take the pressure off. Like my job is to just give a snapshot of this person in time and space right now. I can't give you, he was born, he died, everything that happened. I can just try to like give the most accurate piece of where somebody is right now. So, you know, maybe that means not getting bogged down in every single detail of what happened at seven-year-old basketball league. That also means maybe not have uh, paragraph quotes by his teammates saying, what a great teammate, you know, I'm looking mm. for interesting and compelling. So you want to weed out your information. Like does this move every, every line in your story, you should look through and you should say, does this move, move the story forward at all? And by saying that, I mean, does this illuminate some aspect of his character? Does it illuminate some aspect of setting? Does this illuminate some breadcrumb for something else? And if it doesn't do any of that, delete it. Well, and that's that's such great advice because I think a lot of times, especially for younger writers, including myself, you know, tend to overwrite because you think to yourself that you're crafting this masterpiece and that the more words, the better, when in reality, it's the most efficient story, like you said, with the least amount of fat that's constantly moving forward with rising conflict that's going to be the most entertaining story to read now. Yeah, I mean, recently I did a story on James Williams and it was much shorter than my other stories. And that was um it was weird because I was like why is this so short but I think his journey wasn't what I anticipated but instead of trying to like add on fat just for the hell of it I was like no this is a 2,000 word story I don't really need to do anything more than that so you know and your editors will appreciate it too like I'm telling you they can literally spot when you're bsing (laughs) so the best thing you can do is just like accept the story as it is it's like uh I read my stories out loud I want to hear how it sounds not just because I'm playing with cadence and stuff like rhyme in my stories, but I want to hear it so that I know like, is this boring? Like midway through my Mallory Pugh piece um, earlier this summer on the women's national team star, I was like, this is really boring. Like it just got to this middle point. I was like, why is this so boring? Like I'm really not (laughs) wanting to read this. And so I'm like, okay, if you find your own story boring, that's a problem. But you just, you have to have that critical eye with yourself to know, you know, clearly like from what we're talking about, there's a whole editing process that begins with the self before it even gets to your editor. Well, I'm interested to know what that uh, process was like for you because, you know, there's this thing where when you, when you consider your own work, it's incredibly difficult to separate your own work from yourself. And that's obviously something that everybody probably struggles with and finds their own way. But how did you specifically you know, come to terms with that? Is it something that you've always done? Because being able to be objective about your own work is probably, I would say, the most, the biggest key to improving it. Yeah, it's a struggle. And I think it's a combination. I think it's you being critical and objective about your own work. And it's also finding people that you trust that you can show your work to as well and getting feedback from them. You know, writing is a solitary process, but it's also really collaborative. And I'd be remiss to say like, oh, I did it all myself. Like I taught myself everything. You know, there are a lot of people that have taught me so much and my mentors and they looked at my writing and they really helped me. And my dad is amazing. My dad is my, um, the person I write for, you know, it's the person I trust the most to see my work because he's not invested in me becoming great. He just like, genuinely like believes in me but never hypes me too much you know never says Mm -hmm. I'm great and so it's finding people like that that you can like be vulnerable with and show your stuff to as far as like the personal objective editing it's very hard in the same way it's hard when I feel like in college when students are editing each other I think that's the worst thing ever I don't think uh, students should be editors I don't like how are you 
you don't really know as much as the writer knows. But right. I, think, I think as you get older, you're trying to figure out what you want to sound like. And so when I'm editing, I'm sort of looking like what feels right and what feels off. Like, does this feel weird? Does this feel good? Like, what is it? What does the words feel like to me? And so um, when I'm editing my piece, I'm I'm sort of looking at like this in a very like functional way. Like, are are like you have to pick your emotional moments, right? Like the the times that you really want to hit a reader with something. Is mm. this hitting as emotionally hard as it could? And you have to ask yourself those things. So again, it's going line by line and just like trying to figure out like, is this serving a purpose or not? Nobody knows that when they're 21, you know, I, I'm 28 yeah. now. Um, and there's so much that I don't know. So, you know, being your best editor is something I'm going to keep learning how to do. Now, I want to touch on what you just said about writing being a collaborative process, because it really, really is. A lot of times we're in this vacuum and, you know, we have this idea that seems unsolvable. And how many times have you been in the situation, explained it to one person and within two seconds, you know, they just passively suggested something that solved all, all of your problems. And I think it is super important to be, you know, constantly getting your ideas out there to people you trust. Now, how often are you workshopping ideas uh, with others or maybe just workshopping whole pieces? Do you have like a friend group or anybody else whose work that you kind of trade back and forth and say, hey, what do you think about this? Hey, what do you think about that? I mean, I'm fortunate to have a, a pretty um, great circle. I think it's it starts with BR. So like my editor, Jake Leonard, is awesome. And Elliot Ponnell, um, he's great. Um, and both of them, we, we bounce ideas off. You know, I'm always coming with the pitches. I'm always like, like I had to apologize for sending a, a pitch at like 1230 a.m. the other night because I was just like really hyped and I didn't want to forget it. And I wanted <laughs> to send it. And I was like, just so you know, I want to do this. And um, so I need to get better at like appropriately sending mine. But um, I, I think the enthusiasm is appreciated. But anywho, I have these two great men who um, support me and want to hear my ideas. And we workshop together and we think what works, what doesn't. Um, I also have great mentors, um, Jeff Perlman, Christina Tapper. Um, these are people that I, I'm like, what do you think about this? Like, do you think this is OK? Like, what do you, you know? And then again, my dad and, you know, some close friends as well. I think that like when I was in college, that would not be the me. I was so afraid to speak out loud. Um, <laughs> I remember when, uh, you know, liberal arts college, you know, participation grades count for a lot because oh, yeah. it's a really small school and, you know, you have 12 class, like you have to speak up. And I was like obsessed with getting all A's. And so when, when your professor is telling you speaking up is 25% of your grade, you're going to learn how to speak up. Mm -hmm. So you contrast that, like very shy me, very afraid to speak up to now like journalist me, all grown up, has a group that she trusts to talk to. It's a lot of growth. But I say that to say is like, I wasn't like this for years. It was really hard sharing my work with people. I was embarrassed. I was like, what if they think it's bad? I'm going to have to like run outside or like, <laughs> what if this editor thinks it's terrible? They're going to fire me. I think my second day at the register, I was like, I don't think I can do this. Like I literally called my mom crying. I was like, I don't think I have a future in journalism. Um, so anyways, I say all that to say is that like trusting other people is really, really hard and it takes a really long time to get comfortable. Now we had Jeff Perlman on, uh, I believe it was the second episode of the show. Um, he gave a lot of great insight about, you know, writing features and, and writing books and stuff like that. What kind of, uh, 
ways are you still studying the craft? Because one thing that, you know, I really noticed right away when I started following you on Twitter was how often you are commenting on uh, articles where, you know, writers talk about the craft or sharing tidbits that you heard. And I think that's just really great, uh, you know, how often you're kind of putting that information out there. And so I'm wondering, you know, or sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I interrupted you. Sorry. I just see. I just got. I just got so excited talking about the craft. I was about to come ready with the answer. So well, you're totally <laughs> good because I ran out of steam and lost my train of thought. So <laughs> yes, um, I'm a huge nerd. I love. I could talk about the craft of writing all day. I mean, I love that stuff. I love that stuff. My only regret is not being able to have like a burner Twitter to like completely nerd out on. You know, I have to keep it like very minimal. Um, so <laughs> I. I just. I, I feel like I am a work in progress. I will always be a work in progress. I see growth in myself, but I just, I'm so in love with this, you know, like I, I loved basketball, but I think through like my 15 years of, you know, loving it, I wasn't like in love in the end. I, yeah. I, I loved it. I'll love it forever, but I wasn't in love. I'm still like in love with writing, you know, like I'm still in that like fresh new, I love this. I'm, I'm infatuated. I want to learn more. For that's, sure. how, that's how I feel about writing. And so it's like, I get so many messages from students reaching out that I feel like, okay, well, I'm not the only one who nerds out about this. I should just tweet about it you know and yeah. like I've, I've heard that like other, other people find it helpful too and you know I think that like I view myself as like I the people I look up to Jeff obviously Wright Thompson's my number one and the way that he paints a scene is so confident and oh totally you know, yeah the confidence just like drips through every graph and I'm getting more confident but I'm obviously like nowhere near his level and I should not expect myself of that you know because he has put in you know, so much more time and, and years than I have. And he's older and he's lived and I, I'm living, I'm trying to live. Um, but I think I want to get to a place where I can set a scene the way that he does to where I'm not relying on quotes. Like, I think you'll notice the progression of my work is less quotes in the lead than I used to, because I'm just really trying to set the scene. So right. I, I have a long way to go, but um, everyone does if you take it seriously. Well, right, Thompson. Uh same here. I, I absolutely love him. I just finished uh, his book, The Cost of These Dreams. Oh, if you haven't so read it, it's pretty much required reading for anybody who wants to break into this field ever. But you bring up a really good point, and that is that all of his words are dripping with confidence. Now, a lot of times I read things and I read him and I go, wow, I wish I could do that. But I don't, you know, I see the, I see the start and, or, you know, I consider where I'm at and I see you know, the difference in between somebody like my work and his, but it's connecting those dots, putting those rungs into the ladder that you can climb up and figure out how can I get here. Now, how do you look for things like that? Because confidence is not a tangible thing, but there are tangible elements to his writing that portray confidence. And I'm wondering how you look for things like that. What are you studying in the work, you know, whether it's the cadence or just the way he presents facts? I mean, first of all, it's not being afraid to underline. Like I, I'm a serial underliner. Like I, I, I'm afraid to let anyone like borrow my books or like magazine articles because there's just like so many annotations from me. And I'm like, they're going to think that I'm crazy. Like, I don't want them to know my innermost thoughts. Yeah. Um, but yes, the first thing is just like underlining anything that stands out. Like, um, 
like when people do one word sentences, like how did he have the, how did he, how did he just do that and break all convention? I think that just like blow, blew my mind. I was like, mm-hmm. you're allowed, you're allowed to do that, you know, because I, I think a lot of us are taught that, you know, all these rules and then I'm like, I don't want anything any of the rules like I want to write some shit that is just like unconventional you know so I think when I look through his stuff I'm looking for like what's unconventional and like tone is hard to look for but you want to look for like active verbs like just language like I'm a language nerd I'm like a word nerd like I I underline anything that is unique you know what's unconventional I also like think of structure and big picture like at Oxia was actually a research assistant for my professor and she was writing on Toni Morrison and um, her her narrative field was called narratology and it's the study of narrative structure. Toni Morrison was like the perfect person. Yeah, it's like peak nerddom. I love it. And um, Toni Morrison was like the perfect person for that because her structure of her books, like the way she flows in and out of time is just like on another level. So that's when I began falling in love with Toni Morrison and studying narrative structure. Anyways, this is a long way of saying that like, I studied narrative structure and the effects of it and all of those things for four years. And so when I became a journalist, I thought of my pieces the same. I wanted to, I wanted structure to be my biggest thing. So Wright Thompson, he always says the structure is the architecture or something like that. It's the most important thing. Mm -hmm. And so um, I look at his stuff and I'm like, why did he choose to put this here? Why did he withhold this information until here? What is the effect of him doing that? When I read something, I take notes like, why did I like this? You know, you, there's two ways to approach like having idols. You can read Lee Jenkins and Wright Thompson and Jeff and you can start crying or you can just be like, OK, like I suck, but I'm going to try to figure out why they're so great and try to be like them. And that's that's what I chose. And so I would write down like what made this piece so effective. Well, I do definitely want to uh, want to get into the narrative structure thing. And I love that you brought that up. But first, you uh, just mentioned active verbs. Now, can you go into a little bit more on that? What's the effect of those in writing? Like when I see when I see like um, zoomed or like snaked or like, you know, like some funky verb, I'm like, I'm intrigued when I when I see like a boring verb, I'm like, this person really didn't go through and try to make it more spicy. You know, like, Mm -hmm. I don't know when I when I turn a story and I'm like, I, I'm, I go through all the verbs to make sure there's not a more enticing thing I could use. It's just, I don't know. It's language. It's hard. You, you, you don't, we all overwrite. That's just a fact, right. especially as a young writer, we all do it, but you learn to like overwrite less as time goes on and you learn to be subtle. So I'm going to make this verb uh, interesting verb and I'm going to cut the last clause of the sentence because it's unnecessary and not doing anything. Right. So you learn which ways, to make your language pop and like less is more. So you want to have a descriptive verb because it does something like it, it is very specific. It emotes things. It, it gives a physicality to things. Um, it says what you need to do in, in one word. And so I think like the goal as you go on is to become more concise. And that's what I've tried to do. Well, and so just to go on about the narrative structure thing, when I was in college, uh, I took a, playwriting class it was just an intro to playwriting class and I had all these other different classes that I had going on because I was majoring in creative writing and journalism uh, at the time so this was the first class where my teacher had outright sets a piece of paper on my desk that said structural roadmap and it was protagonist antagonist 
what the protagonist wants, the three ways that he or she will try to get it, and the three ways that the antagonist will try and stop the protagonist. And that was such a game changer for me in like every facet of my writing life because it just all clicked so much better. And I'm wondering what kind of uh, outlines or you know roadmaps or anything of the sort that you have for yourself in place that kind of helps you get ideas on paper in a way that will help you tell the story in the most interesting way possible. I mean, I'm going to credit my mom. Um, my mom came up with this really cool thing because basically like my parents know that <laughs> this, this means like everything to me. And so half the time I'm like, you guys, this is so bad, help. Um, yeah. And so it's just me being like, pity me. I'm, I'm feeling like shit, help, hug me, love me. Um, but when, when <laughs> well, I said that, yeah, exactly. Exactly, exactly. How fortunate are we? And so I, um, <laughs> one of those times, she was like, I think your problem is you're too scared of the lead. And so let's start in the middle. Think of it like a cinnamon roll. Let's just start in the middle. And like, I love cinnamon rolls, by the way. Mm. And um, yes, yeah, so good. And so she was right. I'm terrified of the lead. I do the lead last now. And I just go in the middle for the cinnamon roll. And I try to unpack the layers there. So like, what helps me come really? up with yeah, what what helps me come up with my structure is like the middle. And to me, like I know the lead is so important. I know there's so much pressure. Like it depends where somebody's gonna keep reading or not. But I actually think the most important story is um, the middle, the gut. If you have no gut, you have nothing. Um, and so like I like doing that first because it lets me know like what is this story really about, which I think is an essential like answer that you must have. Um, before you turn in the story. And so like the gut helps you determine that answer. Cause that's a really hard answer. You don't mm. really know what it's about. Like, you know what it's about? Like, I know I'm profiling LaMelo ball, but what is this really about? And I think like identifying what your gut is, where you're going to hit people the most helps you figure out what it's about. Now that's a really good point. Uh, because I, I guess I probably kind of do it the same way where like I have like a general loose lead and then once I go through and I'm like, okay, I have a better grip on the story. That's when I go back to fix it. Um, but I did see, see uh, I think you posted on Twitter a couple weeks ago about uh, an outline that you were doing. Um, so I'm wondering what does that look like for you and how has it helped you? Um, which outline was this? I don't I, remember. I can't remember. You just... I don't remember exactly what it was i'm going off memory but i believe you just tweeted about uh doing an outline for a story and i just don't know you know how many people adhere to outlines even though we were all taught it as children and you know it's beneficial yes. you know i don't do outlines actually so i'm not my, i might have okay. been quoting somebody but i uh, definitely the last couple of weeks have been very like I don't know how to structure this thing that I'm doing. This story mm. is coming out tomorrow. So I think if it was in the last couple of weeks, I think I was referring to like, I don't know where to put things. And I know it sounds very like obvious, but like this story was so complicated and intense. Um, and so like you don't, I'm always afraid of like, uh, this is in the same vein of overwriting. I'm always afraid of um over emotionalizing. I know it's not a word, but I, I know I need to be spare and be sparse when I pick my moments. And sometimes I'm afraid that I'm doing them too much or too often or too soon. So I think I must have been trying to organize like how to limit them or where to best put them. And, you know, a lot of the times, like because I don't use an outline, I just 
I group my quotes in categories and I try to figure out like, okay, all the stuff about early life, here's a category, all the stuff Mm. about this is over here. And then I try to like move the categories around and see what order they go in. And that sort of helps me determine the structure. But oftentimes, oftentimes I write it with that structure only to find out that it sucks and doesn't work and I have to figure it out again. So, and then you'll turn in your story and then they'll completely change your structure. So Basically, it changes a million times, so I never get too wedded to anything. When you are doing a story and you're, like, interviewing people, um, what kind of notes are you taking while you're in the moment? Because, like I said, I just did a, a story the other, the other week, and it's kind of, it was kind of hard for me to compartmentalize. Do I need this? Should I be over there? Should I write this down? Should I, you know, am I, am I going to make... Am I going to give myself too much information and overlook the things that are important? So when you're in a setting where you're just kind of supposed to observe, how are your notes looking? Are you talking into a tape recorder? You know, what kind of is the best way that you found to be able to take it all in for yourself? I mean, it's a really hard balance because I have my recorder out and I have a notebook out and I have a pen in my hand and I'm trying to make this as natural as possible, right? Like I believe in conversations, not interviews. So like Mm -hmm. that's the approach I take. I'm like, you know what? I'm just going here to learn about this other person and I try to make them feel comfortable and natural. So I never want to, I never want to like the face and be like, this is an interview. You know, it's all about tone. And so I can't, I can't be like taking notes every single second of the interview or else it's going to be weird and I'm not going to even be listening to them. Like I need to listen to them, you know, cognitively take in what they're telling me, come up with a next question. Or if they're taking us somewhere, I didn't want us to take us figure out if that's like fruitful territory or how do I rein them back? Or do I let them just take us wherever, you know, I think there's like a lot of decisions that you're calculating in your mind. while at the same time, I'm taking like very, very little notes, like not a whole lot, but like, if somebody if somebody told me something major, I'm writing down what their face looks like while they're doing that and like anything in the setting or like if somebody got emotional, like what time stamp did it happen in the tape? Because when I'm transcribing, I can't remember like that was the moment that a little tiny tear welled up in the corner of his left eye and his eyelash popped out. You know, like the, mm-hmm. these are like really like minor things that are really hard to get down at once. So, you know, I feel like when I finish an interview, I'm freaking exhausted because I'm right. like doing like five things at one time. Um, and it's very hard when you have interviews that are like three hours long, you just feel like so dead. Um, so yeah, it's a combination of things, I think. Now, you, when you say an interview, that's three hours, is that three hours of just straight sitting down or? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I'll be honest, like interviews can range from two minutes to like five hours like Mm -hmm. I and I've and I've been on both ends of the coin I get no access or I get really good access or I get so so access and I've got to interview 30 people to make up for it like Mm. it's such a it's such a pain it's such a range of things and to be quite honest that's why I I would say I write about non-famous people as much as famous people just because it's like well I want to tell a real story how how real of a story can I tell with somebody with five minutes of their time I mean it's ridiculous right well and one of those more real stories that you told was the story on uh James Ransom uh it was examining the circumstances uh surrounding a I believe he's 13 year old boy's suicide um and the kind of concussion that he got in in a football game a year later it was gut-wrenching, informative. I cried twice. Oh. Um, and I'm just 
curious, like how how was this story brought to your attention? And can you just, I mean, if you can explain how you approach a story of this gravity? Yeah, thank you for that. I um, because I started at the Orange County Register and friends with a lot of people in that area, and I saw a lot of people like posting on Facebook. I swear to God, I'm not going to delete Facebook just for these like obscure reasons, like contacting mm-hmm. somebody or finding out about a story. Otherwise, I wish I could delete Facebook. Um, so I just, I, uh, I heard people talking about this and, um, it was such an awful story. And, um, I was like, well, it's in my backyard. I should just reach out and see. And so, um, obviously like when you're reaching out to the parents of somebody that's lost a child, um, you really have to tread lightly. This is, this is so bad for you to ask to even enter their lives in a way. And it's just mm-hmm. like very inhumane. And so, I just tried to think like, what if this was me? What if I was a parent? What if I lost my parent? Reporter girl comes up to me. How would I feel? So um, I just basically said, I would love to just get coffee with you, see if I can explain myself and meet me and see if you'd even be interested. So I'm not even like going with the intention on getting a story. I'm just like, I just want to meet face to face. So we met, turned into like a five hour interview. Um, on the, it was just like a, a therapy session for them, just crying really. And mm. uh, so with that type of story, you know that like you're not going to have one interview and you got it. You got to build trust. So I, I told them at the beginning, I was like, I don't want to come in here and be that reporter that leaves in two hours and never talks to you or sees you again. I was like, right. I want to give you space and distance. Recounting this is really, really um, traumatic. I'll come back when you want me to. If you don't want me to come back, I'll never come back. Also, I said that too. I was like, just because we talked for five hours doesn't mean you owe me a story. I'm cool with leaving it here. You know, so I think mm-hmm. they saw that they saw that I was genuine, and um, I did keep coming back um, because they allowed me to. And so we didn't even get to the suicide till like three interviews in or something, wow. some, some hours in, because you don't want to like, I, like I want to know who this kid was before all this stuff. I don't right. want to like just go into like, okay, he committed suicide because a person is so much more than their worst moment, and my mm-hmm. job is to like give like flexibility and complexity and explore. And so that's sort of why I wanted to take the time. I mean, was that an uncomfortable experience for you? Like starting out that process of being like, Hey, you know, cause you said you were a shy person. And... Yeah, I think it, I mean, I think by that time in my career, I was prepared for it. Like, I mm. think I wasn't really shy anymore. Um, I think, I probably couldn't have handled that at the register. So by this time I was at Bleacher, you know, so I definitely gained experience to know how to handle a situation like that and have had emotional interviews before that. But of course it's uncomfortable. It's horrible. Actually. Like you feel like a horrible person. You're making these people cry because you're trying to figure out questions and you know, your job also isn't to hand them a tissue either. Like you're a journalist and you got to like, you have to have empathy and report through empathy, but you also have to like have distance. And it's a really hard formula. I think people are too far on the I'm friends with you part. I'm mm-hmm. not friends with you. I'm just fair with you. And I think that I've been able to like have empathy and, and get people to open up to me and trust me because I'm reporting with that lens. But also my intentions are really pure and I'm not trying to be your friend. I'm not trying to suck up to you to get access. Like I have walked away from so many stories because I would not be buddy-buddy with people and promise a cream puff story. And I think a lot of people get access by doing that. And they're like, I'm just, I didn't get into this business to do that. I'm not going to do mm-hmm. that. 
Now, how do you remove yourself from the emotions of a piece like that and write something that's fair to the facts without making assumptions? Because I think when you read that James Ransom story, right, you can kind of observe the facts that are presented to you um, and kind of make a decision on your own that would probably be at the very least fair. You can say there was probably a correlation between this kid getting hit and, you know, his life kind of changing forever, but you never directly say that, you know? So what is your objective when you're going in and you're saying, Hey, there are two sides to the story, but I can't get too cozy to the human element of wanting to ooze empathy. You know what I'm saying? Because you have an understanding that that's exploitative and that that's like doing a disservice to um, the kid, the family and science. Like I, it's a very, very hard line to draw. And so we got to credit my editor on that, Ian Blair, for helping me with that. Um, because you're exactly right. I never quite go and say A plus B equals C. This happened. This caused this. But I can draw correlation. I can draw, you know, but I, I'm never going to arrive at a single answer because it's not my job as a journalist. I think mm. that it would be dis dishonest to say that I'm not emotionally affected. I was... Um, and I'm not saying you said that, I'm just saying like in general, like I, I cried writing that story, right. like a lot, like it was, and I write in coffee shops and it would just like, thank God I wear glasses like when I'm typing. Cause it just like would just tear up and I would just be really sad. But then I was like, okay, well, if you're not being emotionally affected by this, then it's not going to come out in the piece. So this is good that you're emotionally affected by this because mm -hmm. you need, you need to be to write some shit like this, but also like, um, you have to remain detached to draw conclusions. And I think like, there's this, there's this notion for writers to like have the answers and to be like a professional opinion haver. And like, right. I'm, I'm not an opinion haver. Like I'm a reporter, I'm a journalist. And that's why you don't see me tweet anything opinion related on Twitter, because it's like, it's not my job to tell you things. It's like, it's my job to explore things and to like report the heck out of it and get as close to an answer as possible. But like, I don't, I don't like having answers because there just aren't any, you know, like a, a kid right. is gone, a kid is gone and you're basically talking about his life, but you can't like stamp a thing on top of it and be like, this is why and end of story, you know? What kind of stories were most important to your development? Because when we had Jeff Perlman on, he kind of talked about being a classic overwriter and somebody who probably took a way too many chances and was a little over aggressive with his with taking chances in writing and he got stuck on a crime beat and that was really what helped him kind of find a good balance so i'm just wondering for you what kind of stories were most important to your development as a feature writer i mean first and foremost i would say lithuania um and we have to give credit to christina tapper my editor on that because um I was a completely different writer in person and reporter then. Um, I was terrified to go to Lithuania. I was really excited, but I was really scared. It was a lot of pressure. Um, I, you know, I didn't have a translator. So, you know, how was I going to get quotes from people? I had no, I had to sneak into the gym in order to get into practice. I had mm -hmm. to look, I, all my access was cut off. I had to like really figure out who I was, who I wanted to be. I was in between jobs. Um, it was definitive to me understanding like, okay, send me anywhere, put me on anything, I can do it. 
And I think like life is about life experiences and being literally thrown into the fire and figuring out what you're made of. And that was critical for me to like be thrown in there and to see what I'm made of. And for Bleacher to send a 26 year old person into that situation, I I mean, I will literally never forget it. Um, Made me who I am. Um, I think another story that was central was the story I did for the Orange County Register on Japanese basketball players. It was a team of women who played in these Japanese basketball leagues, which had been going back before World War II. And um, yeah, I chased them for two years. I chased them for two years. I was in the gym every Sunday with them reporting. And it it just taught me how much I love this. It just taught me like, you know, no matter what happens, I love this. And I do this because I enjoy this. Like, I just love being passionate about a subject and exploring it. And nobody else thought it was interesting. It got rejected from 20 different publications. Um, book, Book deals didn't want it. Like, to this day, it's one of my biggest, like, things that I'm upset about in the industry, but mm-hmm. you know, nobody thought it was a good story because it was about women, but I thought it was right. great. And I thought it taught me about like, it doesn't matter what other people think. It doesn't matter what is marketable or sellable, or I want to write stories that make my heart sing. And uh, I am really glad that I wrote that. And I would say the last thing um, is a story I did on Andrea Yearwood uh, for Bleacher uh, last December. And um, it was about a transgender girl and, um, everyone was kind of afraid to touch that story because they were like, I don't know if we should do this or I don't know if this is the right thing or, you know, because um, the amount of vitriol that trans women face is ridiculous. It's racism. It's sexism. There's all these things. There's all these reasons mm-hmm. preventing these stories from being told. And um, it was just really important to me to um, tell a, tell her story because few people were willing to. And, it, you know, obviously like I, I still get hate mail from that story, but right. uh, I think it was important to my development and um, I'm really glad that I ended up pursuing it. Well, this has been another episode of Sports Media Now with the dedicated, pure, very talented uh, Mirren Fader. Um, Mirren, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate you coming on. Thank you. I really appreciate it.